Hello, and welcome back to Restaurant Pipe Podcasts with me, your host, Jack Cole. So today I'm joined by Edgar van der Grief, who is a senior research ecologist at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. So Edgar, welcome. Would you mind starting by telling us a little bit about what it is that you do and the work that you're involved with? Hi, Jack. Nice to be here. Um, yes, I'm a biologist and I work mostly on, on research in animal ecology. And within that field, I am mostly involved in projects that have to do with infrastructure, roads, railroads, impacts of such infrastructure on wildlife, um, solutions for these problems and uh, the effectiveness of those solutions. So that is my uh, my daily work. And I work in a research institute that is closely uh, affiliated with uh, Wageningen University. That's it. So over the past decades, organization and ministries across the Netherlands have undertaken enormous efforts to adapt nationwide infrastructure to improve road safety and support wildlife. So to start, Edgar, would you mind explaining the initial problems and damages caused to biodiversity and road safety um, by the country's historically intensive building habits when it comes to these networks? Sorry, very wordy question to start. But, uh, well, yeah, <laughs> well, like, like in many countries, also in the Netherlands, one of the first things that you see uh, as a problem caused by infrastructure, by roads, and by the use of roads, are dead animals on the road. Uh, so collision with wildlife. And also here, that was a major issue already in the 1970s, 1980s. That was actually the first period that the first problems were tried to be solved. Um, but later on, we moved from just looking at dead animals on the road as being a problem to also um, animals that don't cross the road at all anymore. So that roads and railroads became barriers for animals and they inhibit their movements through the landscape, which means that populations become isolated. Um, and that, of course, is not very good for the health of the population. So we really moved forward from first having a look at, at dead animals on the road. First, of course, only about large animals because Traffic safety was an issue. Later on, we also looked at smaller animals, amphibians, reptiles that were killed on the road. But we also made the step towards, okay, but what about the barrier effect? What about isolation of populations and the consequences of that on the viability of populations? Okay, brilliant. And so that brings us on to defragmentation, um, as it's known. I'd like you to please explain a little bit about the principles of defragmentation and how it's been put into practice uh, with regards to wildlife um, and transport, respectively. Yeah, defragmentation is uh, is nothing less than, than, than making connections again in the landscape, safe connections, safe movement corridors for wildlife to reach uh, place B from place A and do that in a safe uh, way. So usually it's building tunnels and building overpasses over roads. The first tunnel, I think, was built in 1972 already. That was just nothing more than a small pipe uh, meant for badgers to cross a provincial road. Uh, but in the 1980s, we started to build overpasses. In 1988, two overpasses were opened uh, in the Netherlands. And since then, we... Uh, yeah, we kept building them 
on many places where there are bottleneck locations for wildlife. And I think right now it's, well, we do have about 80 wildlife overpasses across the country and many thousands of, of tunnels. And the whole principle is, uh, okay, you keep the animals off the road, but you still allow them, you, you facilitate them to cross the road and reach their habitat on the opposite side of the road, uh, reach their mates, uh, there is genetic exchange, etc., etc. What has been some of the, the data regarding animal populations um, decline? Uh, data on sort of you know, genetic, uh, what's the word, biodiversity and health and that sort of thing regarding because these populations have essentially been isolated, haven't they? Um, because of the you know the networks and exactly what happened to those those species and which other species and badgers was it affecting? Well, in the end, it's 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 almost affecting all species, maybe except species that need very small habitat, so that our even the fragmentation in the Netherlands may be not enough to to give trouble for these animals or animals that are easily moving and flying around. For them, it's not a problem. For but for most species, vertebrate species, certainly. So we talk about mammals, we talk about amphibians, reptiles, even birds, although they are able to fly, they're not always want to fly across um, uh, non-habitat areas. So what we did um, already in the 1990s was looking really like, um, what, what is the population viability in all these patches across the country and how many patches are on the right side of the line let's say are larger can can provide sufficient habitat for a minimum viable population and how many of these habitat patches are on the wrong side of this this threshold so actually they're not large enough to sustain a viable population and that gave a very very um, yeah, uh, shocking image almost. Um, how much habitat is still there, and the species are still in it, but the models tell uh, tell us, you know, this is a matter of time before the populations go extinct. It's simply too small and too isolated, and there's no connection with other populations. So if you don't do anything, uh, these populations will disappear. So we call them the living dead. If you go outside and you walk in the field, you still see these species and you might think, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that the population is too small and over time it will uh, simply disappear. And you mentioned data a couple of times. How is it used to map and identify uh, these, these bottlenecks or potential corridors? And what are some of the limitations? Uh, we developed a model for that, and that model, um, it's a bit complicated, but it, the basis is a habitat map. So you take a species, you map its habitat in your country, um, then the model is uh, analyzing the configuration of that habitat, for example, the distance between habitat patches, and takes into account the dispersal capacity of the species. So if two habitat patches are too far away, considering the dispersal capacity of that species, they are considered two separate networks because the animal will never be, um, uh, it will never be possible for the animal to get from one patch to the other patch. So that are two networks. 
And that way we make a configuration of all the habitat patches all over the Netherlands. And we use norms and thresholds to say, okay, this is large enough for a viable population or not. We also include data on permeability of landscape use types. Uh, for example, two habitat patches can be very close to, together, but if there is a, a motorway in between that this particular animal cannot cross, uh, this is taken into account. So finally, if we run those analysis, usually we run two scenarios. One scenario with all the infrastructure in place, all the barriers in place, and one scenario with all the infrastructure taken out, um, which means, okay, let's assume that all the infrastructure, all the roads, all the railroads are mitigated, are permeable for, for the species of our concern. And if we then compare the two images, the two maps with infrastructure and without, you kind of see the potential that mitigation at roads may have on the viability of populations. Because we only, in these two scenarios, took out the roads. And if then the viability shifts in a certain habitat patch from non-viable to highly viable, that's just because we took out the barrier. And this helped us to analyze not only locations where animals are killed on roads, but also in terms of where can we really improve viability by mitigating the road, by building crossing structures at the road. Okay, and so once this data has been collected, how are um, objectives prioritized to get to get work underway? Um, so what, course, what is the first thing that, that, that you do, that you get on with the initiative? What are the first steps? Well, the first steps is, is, is make sure you have all the input data for this model. So have the information on habitats, have the information, the biology of the species you want to run through this model. And then you do this for a multitude of species, uh, 10 or 20 species that kind of represent all the habitat types that you are interested in or all the habitat types that are in the country or in the province that you're looking at. Um, and the output of the model, of course, gives you also insight in what is the size or the, the uh, how much ecological benefit a certain measure at a certain location will have in terms of viability. So you can imagine some spots will improve viability of the population that's there, but only yeah, maybe five or 10%. At other places, it might be that even uh, it, the viability is doubled or it's, it's it, two populations that were not viable, both become viable. So it's a huge uh, ecological benefit if you take measures there. And this we used with certain decision rules uh, to prioritize all the measures and the locations where measures should be taken. So we've spoken a lot, of course, about uh, effects on biodiversity and conservation. What are some of the benefits brought about um, for transport and transport infrastructure? Well, the point is that in the 1990s, we were, um, let's say, we were aware of the problem that infrastructure uh, was causing. Uh, everybody had his own method and his own idea where we should do something. And uh, usually it was, uh, okay, the club or the NGO or whoever was shouted, yeah, was shouting loudest. It was getting the money and getting the attention. 
And this was a very, well, it was not very systematic. So uh, the government here decided, no, let's, let's develop one method, transparent. Uh, let's do that in a systematic way for all of the country and then really prioritize based on that method so that we deal with all the problems equally in, in the country. And that was the basis here in this country to set up a national program for defragmentation. And I have to emphasize that was for defragmentation of existing roads and existing railroads. Because if we construct a new motorway or an extension of a motorway, there are all the procedures in place. There is the EIA, the Environmental Impact Assessment. There are plans and designs being made, including mitigation, including crossing structures. So that is all covered. But let's say the problems from the past, when we didn't realize that we were fragmenting habitats in the last hundreds, uh, hundred of years, uh, that was dealt with by this special program of defragmentation of existing uh, roads. And that was a big benefit for the ministry, the three ministries that, that were taking charge of that, because now they had a, a, yeah, a program, an approach, and uh, uh, a lot of stakeholders being involved, and they could work steadily on solving all these uh, problems. That brings me to my next question. So you mentioned the three ministries there, which are transport, environment, and spatial planning. So how are these, or how is this uh, partnership managed effectively? And what are some of the uh, some of the challenges that come with bringing together those three uh, different sectors? Well, in the beginning, it was, of course, just uh, it all starts with people. So you need really committed people in all these ministries that sit together and say, yes, we have to deal with this. And we're all involved, all our ministries. So let's make a program together. It's also true that when the program was finished and the money was allocated, that the Ministry of Transport was really taking the lead in the implementation. So the other two ministries really delegated, let's say, the responsibility to the Ministry of, uh, of Transport. And they were coordinating all the, all the years, 15 years, in which this program was uh, executed. Hey, and more specifically, onto the, the tunnels and the bridges uh, and the corridors themselves, so tell me exactly how they worked for what, what species um, I mentioned. Oh, sorry, I know that uh, toads formed a quite early part, as I understand it. Um, and what, what are some of the data that's been seen in terms of roadkill and all these other uh, effects on species? Well, we make tunnels and bridges for almost all species that live in the Netherlands. So um, in the beginning, the first bridges, for example, they were really focused. And then the whole story that was made at that time was, uh, was about red deer, because it was a new motorway that was crossing through red deer habitat. And actually, at that time, it was not nature conservation groups that initiated those bridges, but it was the hunting society. So that's also interesting. Uh, to, to realize, um, but from a one species focus or one species approach, more and more here, we turned into an ecosystem approach. So the tunnels and the bridges that we built should facilitate, should enable all the species of the surroundings to get across. And this is indeed from insects, from soil organisms even, 
um, to, to red deer and everything in between. And we do see that if you, if you make the structure properly, uh, that these animals are indeed using these structures. Of course, there's a difference. Uh, mobile species like deer uh, quickly find the structures and quickly use them. It's, us it's usually the case that uh, the crossing structure is still uh, in construction and they try already to get on it, um, but they're not allowed yet. So mm -hmm. there are fences to keep them off, but it's, it's, it's usually no problem for such mobile species to find and accept the, the overpasses. It's a bit more of a challenge for the smaller species like reptiles, amphibians, uh, small mammals, because they... Um, especially in the beginning, an overpass is quite empty. Uh, there's no vegetation yet. It has to develop. And they need cover uh, against predators. They need vegetation. They need food. So it takes a bit longer, usually, before uh, such animals start uh, inhabiting an overpass or an, un an underpass. And it's, yeah, it's important for them to find very proper habitat because many of those smaller species uh, don't run across uh, an overpass. Uh, they live on it. And maybe their offspring is, is reaching the other side in a few years from now. So it's a whole other ball game for small species. There you really have to create habitat on an overpass while a deer or a wild boar or a badger, no, no problem, they are not so doing so difficult if there is enough vegetation or not, uh, they will run across anyway. So these are the things that, uh, yeah, that you have to consider, really think about what is my target species for which species or group of species am I building this? Um, and make sure that not only the bridge or the tunnel is, is, is correct in terms of dimensions and, and vegetation, but also the, the, yeah, the, the landings on both sides of the crossing structure. So we've mentioned different sectors, different groups, different um, organizations. Now, of course, uh, over the Netherlands, you've been successfully implementing these, these corridors. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the process of bringing the public on site to support these initiatives. Obviously, these are quite grand um, programs at times. I was just wondering what some of the challenges you have with or have had with the public and yeah, as I say, bringing them on the side, getting them to support it. What was that? What was that like? Yeah, there are there are uh, different stories. Sometimes you have a lot of support, and sometimes not. And if there's no support for crossing structures, usually there is another issue uh, besides the crossing structure uh, that 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 plays a role. For example, we had an overpass that was also allowing. Um, cyclists to pass and the people in the surroundings the in the neighborhood they were against it against the overpass not particularly because of the overpass not because of the wildlife but because this overpass also uh, allowed cyclists to reach the opposite side of the road and they wanted they didn't want cyclists because it was a hiking area so it can be sometimes very challenging even to figure out if there is resistance among people, what is the real reason for their uh, resistance? Very good example of another organization in the Netherlands um, uh, 
to to include the people, to include um, people that visited the, that particular natural area, uh, happened in in the central part of of the country where a large overpass was being built. It it took about two years to build this. Uh, it's the largest in Europe. It's very long. It's like 800 meters. And they built a, a, a watchtower next to it uh, from the beginning. So before it was finished, they built a watchtower already. And they took excursions in groups and people from all over the world, Japan, Korea, wherever, but also local people came. And you could climb this tower and you had a beautiful view on the whole construction of this uh, corridor. And this really was good to get people involved, to start discussion, and they could see with their own eyes what was happening. And yeah, that was really a very good plan of that particular organization. And finally, Edgar, um, to finish, I have quite a broad question, but I hope at the same time not too, too vague. Um, for you personally, what have been some of the biggest takeaways, lesson, I can't speak, lessons um, of these initiatives? Um, that you should evaluate what you do. Uh, as scientists, we are involved in evaluation. So we build all these structures. We have thousands of them. They are being used, but being used doesn't mean that the problems are all solved yet. So you have to evaluate the structures. You have to evaluate the effectiveness. If you um, design new types of structures, which is possible, or new types of measures to keep animals from the road, for example, you have to test this. Test, test, test. Before you start uh, building uh, your innovative ideas everywhere. And that uh, sometimes we we skipped. And, and, and later on, yeah, discovered, okay, this didn't work very well or not at all, uh, but we have implemented it everywhere. And that is something you should uh, prevent. So test, test, test uh, new innovative things and evaluate. Always go back after you have made a construction uh, to see whether it really does what it should do. I can give you one example of uh, a road that was mitigated uh, in the central parts of this country uh, for toads. There was a big toad population there. And uh, two tunnels were built for the toads to get across and to reach their breeding ponds. And after the, the tunnels were made, they were used. They were found by the toads and they were used quite frequently even. Dozens of toads went through the tunnels, so everybody was very happy. But we started to ask the question, okay, it's fine that these toads run through it, but how many toads are reaching the road, reaching the fence that was set up along the road, and don't reach the tunnels? Hence, don't reach their breeding ponds. And uh, so we start uh, marking animals and recatching them. And we found out that only 30% of the toads made it across through the tunnels, which means that 70% of the toads that approached the road, wanted to cross, didn't make it. And toads are like, okay, we walk for a while along the fence, but after a while we are sick of it and we return. And we don't take a part in uh, the breeding. And we really saw over a few years that the population in terms of numbers declined rapidly. So yes, the tunnels worked. They were fine. They were found. But it were not enough tunnels. Uh, 
It was a road stretch of about one kilometer and two tunnels were simply not enough. And we could only find out because we evaluated. We started the study afterwards to see, you know, is this really enough? Uh, so don't be too quickly satisfied uh, or proud on yourself <laughs> that you did something. No, really go back and look if it does, if it has a positive effect on population viability. And that is really a take-home message I would like to give you. Fantastic. And finally, Edgar, um, for those who'd like to follow you, find you, uh, get more involved with your work, where can they where can they find you? I will be available on the website of uh, Wageningen University and Research. And if you type my name there, then you will probably easily get to the pages that uh, my contact information is there. Edgar, thank you so much for your time. It's a real pleasure. You're welcome. Bye-bye.